Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So today, I'm going to be talking with the producer and songwriter, Tom Hall. He's better known as Kid Harpoon. He was a recording artist in his own right, and then he started to do high-profile work with people like Florence and the Machine, Calvin Harris, and Skrillex. He's gone on to form a particularly close creative partnership with Harry Styles. He's been working with Harry since his first solo album, and he co-wrote and co-produced every song on Harry's great new album, Harry's House, often working with another songwriter and producer, Tyler Johnson. Tom also co-wrote and co-produced every track on Maggie Rogers' new album, Surrender, and his year also included a track with Lizzo and a tracks with Florence and the Machine. So basically he's had a hell of a year and there's a ton to talk about. We go into great detail on the making of Harry's house and his other work with Harry Styles and we also talk about all his other work this year and beyond. Here's me and Kid Harpoon. There's a lot I wanted to talk about, but I wanted to start, I think, with a song that should, in a just world, earn you a producer of the year nomination on its own, in addition to all the other stuff you've done this year, which is, as it was, an absolute blockbuster hit for Harry Styles. People don't quite realize how amazing it is that a song that sounds like that is a number one hit for weeks and weeks in America in the year 2022. It's just such a departure from the sound of the current charts. Did you expect that to be the smash it was? I'd love to say I did because it would make <laughs> me sound really good, but I honestly had no idea. I mean, on the last last album, we had Watermelon Sugar. Watermelon Sugar And I was pretty confident in that song. I was like, this is the one. And not everyone was sure. No one knows anything. With As It Was, I thought it was more of an indie release, you know? Like, it sounds to me like an indie song. Exactly. I think that's why, maybe why it just did its thing. And also, I I feel like us, in terms of what you said about about it not sounding like things on the charts, it's kind of hard because I had a real flip in my music career. I was kind of started to think of music i was like man i'm so obsessed with listening to like modern music and it feels like the world is that i'm forgetting to listen to all the other stuff that has been around for years and it's funny i've actually lost that part of my brain that has the the drive for new music in the same way like i've just because new music is you know i'm always hearing new music that's like 40 years old and some people it's really old music, but sometimes to you it's brand new. So I think I think the problem if you're creating music and you're listening to the charts a lot like that, you can end up making music that sounds like what you're listening to, which if you're listening to the charts all the time, you're making music that sounds like that. And I think a lot of working with Harry that I love is, you know, listening to old references and things. And, you know, that's ten- what tends to come up. It, it could have been from several eras, but it could have been... Uh, like an indie pop song from somewhere between 2005 and 2007 is one of the eras it could have come from. But I don't know what you were thinking as far as references for that one. No, I mean, it's funny. When when you produce a song and you do it, someone gives you a song and says, produce this. You kind of have to like 
brainstorm how do I want this to sound? So, for example, Harry wrote that song Cinema um, and kind of brought it into the studio. And we were like, okay, let's figure this out. How do we write? How do we produce this? And we kind of were like, it would sound cool if it was like this and kind of got some references together and kind of went for it. You sort of move around with as it was. And actually a lot of the stuff we do with Harry, it ends up being written at the same time. So it's kind of a bit of a free for all. You know, it's a bit of a where we write, you know, some chords and then we sing a bit of a melody and then this line comes up and oh, this might work with this. And suddenly all this like well of influences you have, which you're not even conscious of come into play. So for me, and then you also have like my influences, Harry's influences, Tyler, who works with us and you know, what, you know, did those, um, he, you know, we all have our influences. So, um, Tyler's amazing at like synths and kind of, so he would have his specific references, Harry's obviously lyrical references and melodic references. And then, you know, I'm sitting there on the drums and I was like, oh, this could have like a strokes kind of vibe. Um, on the drums and then suddenly all these references come together in a melting pot that becomes better than the sum of its parts if you know what I mean Um, and I think that's what you know Harry in particular has said from the beginning of working when I started working with Harry has been his real sort of like flag in the uh, ground kind of moment is I don't want to sound like anyone else I want people to be saying that's the Harry sound that's the Harry sound and 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 I think that actually comes from collaboration. And he sort of put me and Tyler together, um, sort of puts in the studio. We always talk about it as like an arranged marriage, working on stuff. And <laughs> the three of us have really developed like a, a real synchronicity in the studio. And we bring in all our, you know, all our great our great strengths and all our weaknesses and all our flaws and everything. And we just put it all in a big... And so, so to me, it's as it was in terms of like references, isn't necessarily... Um, something we set out, we're going to do this. But you get to the end and you hear it and you go, oh, it's got the sort of aha references and the strokes references and maybe there's a bit of talking heads in there and, you know, and then, uh, you know, it's got, it becomes something bigger than the sum of its parts, yeah. Forgive the extreme specificity, but where did the uh, the little riff at the beginning come from? Well, but what tends to happen, I think Tyler was playing something. What tends to happen in the studio, it's one thing I love about, Harry's he really kind of like we were talking about this the other day he tends to produce us so Tyler was playing a riff I think in the studio um and Harry was like that's great and then there was a moment where we had to sit there for probably about 30 minutes or something whilst Harry specifically told him how to play it no it needs to be and then Tyler's like trying to translate that and the there was an arpeggiator on the keyboard and that was triggering it in a funny way and it was like it was a whole thing so it sort of came from that moment and and honestly with what's funny about as it was specifically is out of a lot of the songs I've done in my career that one in particular like Harry has the voice note it was written so quickly because it just sort of um and it was in amongst of a bunch of other songs. And it was not like, oh, we've got this big smash hit now. It was like, cool, that's a song done next. 
And you don't even know if anything's going to make the record because I, I feel like one of our biggest strengths as a team is having your like quality control at the end. You know, writing songs isn't the hard part, right? You know, knowing when you've got ones that you actually really like and you're like, I want that to be on the record. That has to be it is the bit. Mm. And, and I think sometimes the thought of writing the big smash or the biggest song ever or this is kind of what kills it. And actually, even though we've done that now with As It Was, but none of that was in our control when we wrote it, if you know what I mean. It was just, we just, that was just another song on the list and of ones that we were like, that one's really good. I like that one. Um, and I think we wrote two or three songs on that trip. We had Love of My Life was written on that trip as well. And, and you never know what one's going to be, you know, be the ones that go. Because I, I think when you're looking at songs, it's about building a body of work and then building an album. That's why I feel like Harry, you know, we focus on being an album artist and, if you focus on the singles, you end up with 10 or 11, you know, songs that are trying to be singles and three that only actually end up singles. You know what I mean? So, um, but that one, yeah, it's gone. I've heard that for artists who kind of use songwriting camps or just use outside songwriters, that there's less incentive to sort of write album tracks for those songwriters. Because basically people who aren't producers who are just songwriters only get royalties from basically radio or licensing and not from streaming. So the just writing an album track isn't very exciting for a, a standalone songwriter. But your method doesn't include that problem. No, and I, I had a big shift in my career, actually, where I, I realized that for me personally and my kind of approach to making music is it's a much more like you need time. Like there's no you could go in with there's, you know, insert songwriter and producer name here and write a massive song tomorrow. Um and it happens. There's one being written right now that will be on the radio and it will do its thing. And it's great. And the songs are always the star. But it, I feel like I'm as a producer, I want to live in, in, in a kind of zone where I'm supporting artists, bringing their dreams of what they want to create to life. So mm. that takes longer than a day. You have to kind of really get in someone, someone's head because... You're trying to create something that you can't describe. I can't tell, you know, if we said, sat down, you said, I'm going to do my album today. What should I make it sound like? I mean, there's literally no way of us <laughs> describing it. And if we do describe it, it means it already exists. So it's so what I feel like the way is like, okay, well, we're going to live together for the next six months to a year, basically be texting all the time, calling each other, sending each other songs, getting in the studio. We're going to write some of the worst songs you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> and I promise you, there are some songs out there that um, me and Harry have done that, you know, we even joke about how bad they were when we wrote them. And, you know, it's, it's part of the process because you kind of have to go through that and then your real talent becomes in finding the ones. That's what the sound we were looking for. That's it. And you're identifying that. And, and you know, that's the real skill is just knowing when you've got ones that, that really stick. And you, they, they, tend to, they tend to be the ones you come back to and want to work on again. And you're like, you know, I notice it as a producer. I'll be, you know, I'll be working with someone and they're like, can we pull up that song again? Can we pull up that? I just want to work on that. I, I want to work on that. And I'm like, that one's finished. And then you realize it's just because it's a great song and we want to, we're enjoying it the moment, you know, um, mm. and playing it. So to me, it takes a bit more time. So the, but with that kind of songwriting process of the writing camps and things like that, they also tend to be for different kinds of projects, projects where people want to, you know, you know, their careers are kind of defined by hit records and singles and things like that. And, you know, this, other way is more about 
creating albums and and you know moments for culture which i think is kind of my defining goal um whereas i feel like those songwriter when it's very easily turned over it's usually because there's a there's a uh, almost a songwriting and production process that you kind of insert the artist into and they go through it and the song, you know, because that though, that songwriter has their process and they probably have a producer they work with really well. And I've done that before. Um, and actually it's, it's great. I've done a lot of songs like that before and it's great. It's not to knock it, but it's just where I hit in my career for me personally. I really, really love getting in the weeds with someone and doing all that, you know, writing the the bad songs and the good songs and getting to that so um yeah well with harry's house there's 13 tracks how many songs were actually written and and or recorded for the album i mean I, it's really hard do you know what? i was thinking this the other day because people always say you read this in press releases where they say oh we wrote 50 songs and we picked 10 and like mm. um and I, I just those people are really way more organized than me for sure because I, I the ones the ones that we write I'd have to go through all the pro tools sessions and and see I mean we tend to write you know some days we'll write four songs a day but that's also some of those songs are getting you know we might have just written a melody and a lyric here and there and 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 realized halfway through this isn't going anywhere so we bail on that idea and then write another one a lot of the offcuts still come up you know, there's good ones that didn't make the record safe a fine line. There's two songs on this that were written in the process of um, fine line. Boyfriends was written and um, mm. Little Freak was written, both written. And for Little Freak was actually produced and mixed f a whole different version for fine line. But it just didn't feel right. How was it different? It just because originally the song was written just me and a harry in japan in a hotel room just on, right. on guitar so we had this really like and the vocal was amazing and we 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 were just sort of stacked up all these vocals which i think are the final vocals still and he had this electric guitar part but the mics weren't working properly and they were all buzzing so we had these like really really kind of like odd recordings and uh we kind of tried to clean it up and we went through this whole process and it just ended up sounding really mature it sounded like it just didn't fit. It just was like, I, I don't know, maybe we just didn't get it right. But I always loved, I, th I still think, you know, one thing I think Harry doesn't get enough credit for is his lyrics because I think he's, I absolutely love his lyrics. And those lyrics on, on Little Freak, to me, I was always like, this is some of your best. Little Freak Jezebel You sit high atop the kitchen counter Stay So incredible. And they're all, it's all very... You know, you could listen to it and it sometime to someone might sound a bit random. Like, why is he saying that and that and that? But having lived with him and spent time with him and it's all things that are relevant and happening. I can tell you what each line is, is kind of in reference to. And, mm. and when we were doing it, so then when it came around to this record was like, man, that little, little freak still really hits me. as like such an amazing song. Like we never nailed that. And we just kept chipping away at it. And suddenly it was like, oh. This kind of sounds great and fits with the record. Why don't we do this? You know, and it's something I wanted to bring into Harry's world. One thing I love, I'm a massive Radiohead fan. And as a fan of Radiohead, mm. I love that you listen to In Rainbows and there's, I think Nude was written for OK Computer potentially. I, I remember them reading that somewhere. And, you know, I've, I've seen that with people I've worked with who are just always pulling in bits from like, oh, I wrote this song three years ago and like this one lyric was really good or this pre-chorus and I feel like again it's like it's so hard it's a really hard job to write good things and sometimes good parts and good songs get lost because the production around them or the songwriting around them wasn't able to keep up so I think part of our skill has to be remembering 
those moments and holding on to them and bringing them back and not letting them forget. Because for me, you know, someone like Harry, who's obviously having a incredible year you know to me it's like let's stop seeing this as like a one-off and let's have a run and like this is a moment where you're creatively in a real zone that everything just feels connected and you might not be forever you know and so let's just we need to be keeping track of everything and you know it's a real window of of, of doing that you know yeah and he, he said that you guys are still writing writing right now potentially for the next album like you've, you've stopped with him on tour he said and written or are writing yeah well the, the, i mean the thing is another thing i've because having like worked with harry as, and known him as long as i have one thing i've always had with him is like you never stop like there's no point the minute it's, it's a it's a muscle that you have to keep going so i think the idea of like you know you've seen stories about oh so and so's back in the studio writing and i i think most people who who make music are always writing i mean i think Harry takes a piano on tour with him and backstage he's always writing ideas every day and I think it's important because it keeps you it keeps the muscle activated and it keeps um because otherwise you get back in the studio and you're like how do we do this again what what do we do and and you kind of the connection between what's coming out of your hands and out of your speakers and your you know what you're writing down and the connection to what you're listening to is like a constant conversation like you know you might tell me about a song that i hear on the radio or you know or like you might tell me about a song have you heard this and then i listen to that and i'm like oh man that's fucking awesome i'm gonna go and make something like that today and and i feel like the problem is if you aren't writing all the time you can sometimes um have the idea and just not know how to execute it or not know how to get in that zone so so i think we're always writing anyway and i you know i know i've encouraged that with harry and you know i think it's always happening it's hard now. He's on tour now, so that makes it really difficult. So, but yeah, hopefully soon. He said you you like specifically fly out sometimes to meet him on tour to do some writing. Yeah, I mean, like Watermelon was done. We wrote Watermelon. Um, he was playing in Nashville um, in uh, on his very very first solo tour. He was doing like a theater tour, and he was playing the the Ryman, um, and it was incredible. And we and Tyler lived lives out in nashville and so we were like why don't we just do a day in the studio um because i'd helped out harry MDing that tour um and so i flew out and we just did a day in the studio we wrote two songs um the other one didn't make it and the other one was watermelon which was kind of a half kind of i it was it was kind of the song was there but the production was kind of a little bit rushed um and at one point both songs were going to make it and then the other one got cut uh, you know later down the line but um watermelon just kept sticking around and we had to work that one really hard to kind of wrangle it into the shape that end ended up at but yeah but that was done on tour what was the biggest breakthrough in making that work um honestly the biggest breakthrough feel, feels like when it came out and did what it did because <laughs> at the time we were still wondering if and there was a moment when we were playing the album back because it was written so early on and the production was so rushed and kind of unfinished, I think everyone got used to the song and didn't necessarily see it for what it is. Like if we'd have just turned around and had Watermelon Sugar the way it is now, people might have gone, fuck, that's amazing. This is great. This is the single. Awesome. But um, I think it was probably one of the first songs we wrote for Fine Line. And it just 
had that thing by the end, everyone was really familiar with it. And the production had been a bit of a process, you know, because we'd had it taken time to get it right. Um, and we tried a bunch of different, threw everything at it to try and see if it, what would work. And so I think there was this sort of feeling that like, I'd always felt like this is incredible, this song, because it's just, to me, it's like, there's loads about it I love, but also just with Harry, it's just such a, he's one of the funniest people I know. And he, not everyone sees it all the time in the ways that he can be really funny. And something like Watermelon, it just, the whole thing came about and, you know, we were talking about lyrics and, and he was like, oh, should I change these? And this is stupid. This like, I want your belly. I want this. And it's just a bit throwaway. And I was like, but it's so funny. It's so good. And, you know, it's been sort of documented what it's about. And it's sort of, to me, it was like the song was always, always there. But the big breakthrough was when it kind of did what it did, you know, and, um, yeah. and then everyone could go, we could kind of breathe and go. Oh, it was as good as we thought it was. And we didn't fuck it up, basically. To finish with, as it was, how did the bit with his goddaughter at the beginning get on there? Come on, Harry, we want to say goodnight to you. He flirts with stuff like that all the time, putting stuff at the beginning of songs. And then we've had it before where we've put stuff and taken it away. And he just played it and he was like, imagine it started with this. We should put this on something. And then I think he'd had it and thought... That'd be good at the beginning of a song. And then he was like, why don't we try it on this one? So we put it on there. Um, and then I just, it just sat there for a while at the beginning of the song. And I just remember when we were right in the end at mixing, we're all lying down in the studio. And you, I have this memory of a moment where we're lying down. None of us are looking at each other. We're just sort of closing our eyes, listening through the songs. And Harry just said loudly, was like, should that, um, should I definitely have the voice at the beginning of the song, right? And it's just a moment of like questioning everything. And, and I just remember strongly being like, you're crazy if you take that off. It's potentially my favorite part because um, I just know my kids will just love that. And it's also just, I don't know, it just feels so real. Do you know what I mean? It's truthful. It's not forced or anything. It's just a real thing. So, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where it feels, it feels like it had to be there. You know, you're so used to hearing it at this point that yeah. if you took it out, it'd be jarring. And then finally, did the bridge of that song come in the initial writing? Yes, it did. That, that wow. was, um, I remember we had it and then I think that's my melody, the bridge or something. And then I chucked it out and then it was in the zone of like, would that work? Because I remember feeling like we should have some, a bit more tempo in the melody, lift it up at the bridge. And yeah, I mean, everything happened so quickly. We just did the whole thing. That's what I mean. Like you go through that song and it's almost the uh, you know a real like encapsulation of the kind of like synergy that we have as a team because it really is all three of us that song really doing our you know you can point out you did this bit i did this bit you did this bit and then there's this other gray area where we're all influencing each other on it and the bridge was done at the same time it was pretty much the way it sounded at the end of day one was how it sounded um it's not far from what it is now we didn't really do that much to it after i mean the drums was a whole thing because we re-recorded some drums at the end. So what, what is interesting about that song, I've had a lot of producers ask me about the drums on that song um, because people are like, is that a live kit? Is it not a live kit? And we had, it's also like a sort of, we'd set up drums in the studio and it was in a house. And honestly, they sounded bad. They didn't sound great because we'd, <laughs> we were in a room with like loads of books, which we thought would sound good, but it wasn't sounding good enough. So we'd put all these mattresses in there and you kind of had to climb over the mattresses to get to the drums. And then 
they weren't sounding great and they sounded like the problem is if a room doesn't sound good you can't really change that so then you have to try and kill the room we couldn't kill the room and make it really dead so we were like how do we do this so i jumped on the drums and played what i thought the part should be so i'd play the whole song down and then i'd jump and then we'd go in it wasn't sounding right so we were like well why don't we record each drum individually and kind of map it to what I was playing as a part. Because then you could record a kick drum or a snare and you can remove as much room as you can from that one sound, which is a lot harder to do on a whole kit because everything's kind of working together. You've got like eight mics or something. So we'd take like the kick drum and the snare drum and then we'd map that to what I'd played on the performance and then add a hi-hat into that. I'd play a hi-hat and we'd layer that in. So the drums are live, but they're kind of... It's a really unique way of, I guess, of doing the drums. I would sit there and I'd be like, okay, what's the kick drum part? And I'd play it for like a few bars and then we'd, you know, track it out like that. So I'd do it as individual drums. Um, but then at the end, there was this whole thing. It was like, man, this needs to really lift off. And we weren't quite, you know, it was kind of doing what it's doing on the final recording, but it wasn't quite right. And then, then we were at Real World working with Mitch Rowland, who we do a lot with as well. He plays live with Harry. And um, Mitch is an incredible drummer. And um, we were like, hey, could you have a go at the end of this song? And so he jumped on. We were doing some other stuff as well. I think we did sushi there with Mitch. And um, he jumped on the drums and did the ending. And it was like, well, that sounds amazing. So we had him play the beginning bit, but it just didn't sound as good as this other vibe that we'd got at the house. <laughs> we were like... Okay, so it's kind of like a merge of two two drums, you know. It's kind of like kind of interesting. I think I feel like that's the thing I've had. I've had you know producers reach out and be like, "Man, those drums! How did you do those drums?" I was like, "It's like <laughs> like it's a very long yeah, story. <laughs> so you need to find a really bad sounding room and a lot of mattresses and you know." Um, but no, it was great. I'm, I'm you know, but it's also funny to be talking about a song that really didn't take that much time, in, which is kind of kind of interesting. You know. It still may be the song with the most live drumming on it to hit number one in the United States for quite some time. I'd have to look at the yeah. <laughs> the charts for a while, but the, you know who who knows when the last time I know <laughs> song with live drums on it hit at number one. So I know, and I'm it's quite. I mean, I'm also proud because I'm 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 a competent drummer, but I wouldn't say I'm a you know a really you know I'm not a shredder on the drums, and um, I'm really like you know with Harry, I'm playing a lot of the drums on on on. Uh, Harry's house and I'm kind of like often you've the limitations same with the way those sound often those limitations of like working around those ends up being the thing that makes the most interesting what songs on the album took the longest if this was so quick I mean I guess Little Freak because it was if if right. you know because it <laughs> went back so long but really probably the one again uh, Boyfriends which was but not because of the same reason. Little Freak just took a long time from when it was conceived to when it was realized as this version. Boyfriends isn't actually that much different to how it was when it was first done. I think some bits of the songwriting got added as we go. And then, but the production, we just couldn't nail. We tried so many different things. And I, you know, from like me playing a, um, like a, like a, a guitar, a that's like a, guitar the size of a ukulele with ukulele strings did a version like that going through a tape machine and then harry singing at the set we did and then we did like with all these vocals stacked up loads of things none of it worked and then um harry had met ben harper and they just really got on and he was like why don't we try ben harper on it and it was honestly 
one of the most incredible things watching he came in and all he did was play acoustic guitar and honestly it's not a million miles from what i played or mitch played or anyone else played when we tried boyfriends in the past but there was this moment of like ben harp is playing on a harry styles record he's excited we're excited he's got the guitar that he used to use on his early records back and he's playing this song and it just something about the whole thing just suddenly came together and I came in the next day and you never quite know and I was kind of nervous and I remember sitting there and just being like you know I thought there was going to be a whole uphill battle like oh we're going to come in it's not going to quite sound the same as we thought because we just a bit got a bit carried away because we you know obsessed with Ben and, and we're going to have to add bass and maybe this needs drums maybe this needs that came in the next day and it was like oh this is done it was just acoustic guitar Harry's vocals and I think we added a little synth um, to kind of give it I like adding like some synth to stuff like that just to give it this feeling that you're like you know because every you've heard the guy in the dry room doing it so let's try and add some like kind of cosmicness to it somehow and uh, um, but it was just done and it was literally just I don't know it was really took so long to get to that which is a very simple recording it's just acoustic guitar vocals and one synth but it took so long you're so easy. It, remi yeah. it reminds me of the, the Rick Rubin once asked for a credit reduced by Rick Rubin. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what this reminds me of. Yeah. And it was like, that's one of the biggest things I learned um, on Fine Line, actually, was, was knowing when a record's done. And I feel like that's the hardest thing, you know, knowing when you can sit back and go, oh, that's good. It took us that long to get to a place, I guess, of knowing that just knowing when a record's finished because we'd done that version if, if you know what i mean we'd done guitar and vocals version before and it took that moment and that recording and that energy of ben and harry and the whole thing and just to kind of make it come together and, and it really is a, i guess what i'm learning and we're all continually learning is to trust our instincts when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. On the other end of sort of minimalist versus very produced and very interestingly produced is music for a sushi restaurant, which is sort of gleefully produced, very much so. A lot of yeah. sounds going on in that. Tell me about this sort of sonic evolution of that song. Um, it's funny because sushi... It's funny because it's the first song on the record and also feels to me like it has a similar way it came about to golden which was the first song on fine line which was mm. we're, we're often in these 
places where you're like recording and, you know, everyone's doing things at different times. And Golden came about at Shangri-La. I just walked in one day and, and, you know, Mitch was riffing on something and Tyler was riffing on his computer. And I was like, man, put on my headphones. I was like, this sounds great. So I started playing acoustic guitar to it and then we just tracked it down. And then Harry came in and was like, man, that was great. What's happening with that? And then we ended up writing Golden. And then... Sushi was really similar. We were at Real World, Peter Gabriel's studio. I walked in and Mitch and Tyler had sort of in and Mitch was just playing the bass riff. Um, and Tyler had started these like drums. I was like, man, this is awesome. So then we sort of jumped on that and me and Harry started throwing like vocal ideas at it and bits and bobs and and trying some stuff down. And it, it really took time because basically then what happened was we got a really good verse and we had a really bad chorus <laughs> and then um six months later we were still listening to it going this is really good um we need to figure this out and we just kept trying different chorus ideas and things but just just didn't feel right and then it was like what if there isn't one what if this is the you know this is it and what if we just go what if it kind of lands somewhere where it's like brass and you know that was sort of one idea we tried and we tried and we're like well this kind of works this is cool and then it was like, well, how do we tie that into the vocals? Because now it just feels like an instrumental section to this. So then we ended up kind of, it was a bit of a process getting it to where it ended up. But a lot of those original verses are still exactly the same. And I, you know, I mean, I've said this to Harry, I think. Because when you think of great lyrics, you think of Imagine, you think of Leonard Cohen, you think of, you know, really deep and meaningful lyrics. But um, to me, there's also something incredible about um, that second verse. I just feel like it. that is what gets me so excited about music when it's like, um, excuse me, green tea, <laughs> I could cook an egg on you and, and all that kind of those kind of lyrics. And then he's like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like and it was half like, oh, we're probably going to put a lyric there. But it was just like, you know, and that's stuff that when we go back to what you were saying about songwriting sessions is it's not, it's not an easy place to get to for anyone in a day. It's not to say that those people wouldn't come up with the same thing, but in a day and you've got a day with insert artist here to do a, you know, do a song. It's not easy to, to just suddenly get to a place where you can go, how about you kind of need to know everyone. You need to know the vibe. You need to be really comfortable and just, and also coming back to songs and giving, giving it a, a moment. Um, so yeah, so that one that one was a bit of an evolution. Um based around Mitch played that bass riff and it was just, you know, I mean Mitch is such a good guitarist, he, you know. And then the rest kind of came together. He kind of heard it once. He hadn't heard the way we'd finished it and then he sort of came in and was like, "Holy shit, what have you guys done to this? This is amazing." At the end because it was just kind of unexpected the way it went, but I feel like time allowed it to do that. The combination of things like the I assume that's a, a synth horn riff and the, the vocal stacks and everything. It's just very, very bold and distinct it, in many ways, sort of matching the, the fun silliness of the lyrics, I would say. Yeah. And do you know what? That's another kind of, so I bought this synthesizer, the Moog one or Moog. I, yeah. It's whatever, however you say it. Yeah, and Moog, they, yeah. um, and they, um, I've just got it in my head that it's Moog. So I just, me too say that. for it's years, gonna, but then I, I was, gonna, I was firmly corrected by someone once. And so I, I know, but it doesn't help. It's like, well, I'm still going to call it Moog every day and everyone it's their problem, not mine. That's the way I see it. <laughs> um, so I bought the Moog one and it's 
not a cheap synth. It's an expensive synth. I don't know if you know it, but it's like seen as this big, like they right. brought it out and it was the all singing, all dancing. And I bought it and, and it's awesome. Like it's doing the riff on as it was, is part of, you know, a layer of Moog one, but I, it's one of those things where you've spent the money on it. So you have to use it. And me and Tyler always joke, you know, like when you buy a bit of gear, you know, it's got to pay itself back. You know, I've got to pay it back. And I've really hardly used it apart from as it was and sushi. Cause I was like, I know how to find brass sounds on, on there. So I just went through the presets and I was like, this is, let's just jam in someone. And then we put it in. I was like, this is kind of like Ghostbusters. It's so funny. <laughs> so let's put that in. So we put it in and we put in real horns stacked in there as well it's like a real whole combination but then we made it sound good so the the real horns on their own kind of sounded a bit weak so it's got this like real like it's part live part synth you know kind of um you know came about through me probably just want to try and justify buying this stupidly expensive synthesizer um <laughs> which has paid for itself but now just takes up retail space in my studio but um it's actually no it's actually I've, i i you know i actually really like it but it's it's just funny you know you spend that much on something and you've used it twice but they happen to be two of the best moments of you know you know that album yeah um late night talking was one that i, I think it was just the two of you wrote what do you remember about that one coming together things haven't been quite the same there's a haze on the horizon babe yeah, that one was great. That one was, um, we, so we were in at Shangri-La. We'd set up the studio specifically. We kind of swapped it around. So the recording room had been moved to where the live room is. I was like, let's swap it. Let's make it feel like a bedroom. Because this was peak COVID. So this was like, you know, you're sanitizing the, the Amazon packages and everything. <laughs> right. And so this was like, we're going to live here and we're all going to be in here. Let's make it comfy. And I wanted to have like a, feel a bit more like, you know like a living room so we flipped it so the live room was like the studio and then tyler was coming in the next day so me and harry got in and he he was like hey i've got these sort of chords i've been playing around there he was playing sort of almost like jazzy slow chords um and i was like these chords are great and what and you know i love party music and i love having a good time so when i'm in the studio because if also i feel like if you're going to work on something i realized you know, if I'm going to work on something, it's going to take up a lot of my time. So I'd rather it be something really happy and like kind of like mm. or like at least uplifting. You know what I mean? Not to say it's, you know, um, you know, some songs can really get you emotionally. But if I'm going to spend days on end working on a production, it helps if it's making me dance for days on end because then I don't need to go to the gym as much. So <laughs> we're working. So I see so he plays these chords and I was like, my instinct is always hey, what if we did these faster? So I was like, hey, we could do it like this. And then it kind of evolved into the core, The verse of Late Night Talking was these chords sped up and the, because it was originally this. And I was like, well, it could be. And become this sort of like big thing. And then we just started going and, Again, that one was done, the way it sounds on the record is kind of not far from how it was at the end of day one. You played um, all the instruments on that, right? Yeah. And um, and I'd had a bunch of, again, new toys is becoming a thing. I had some <laughs> new old 80s Akai sampler that I was sort of into. And so that sound that uh, 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 kind of was just m me dicking around on a sampler and finding some things. I was like, this is cool. And then, 
you kind of went and you're never quite sure if you've got something you, you really like. And it's obviously that's quite a like happy, upbeat kind of poppy song. So and and then there was a time I had to drive from Malibu back to where I live in Laurel Canyon a couple of times, um, you know, and I was listening to it driving through, listening to one of the mixes driving through the canyons on the way back to Malibu and I just, the sun was out and I was like, I felt so good listening to that song and I just, I remember I came in with a big smile on my face. I was like, man, I think that late night talking song's really good. And <laughs> Harry had a smile on his face and he'd been staying around Malibu and he'd obviously been doing the same and he had a smile and was like, I know. And I, I could tell he'd had exactly the same experience, um, same same as me. So, yeah, it was fun and it was good. The, the, the Everything about that song was in my head, I, I love McCartney in the 80s. I think he's, you know, and, and I feel like I love the way you get that songwriting, but then the production suddenly gets really, like, more conceptual because mm. it's not just, like, guitar, drums, bass, and we've got a good song. There you go. It's like, okay, all these people are doing really fresh things in production right now that feel like they're just, you know... You kind of some of that eighty stuff feels to me like by definition they had to be pushing genres, um, and and if you weren't doing that, you were kind of not playing the game. You know the current moment then. So I love McCartney in the eighties because it's like this. It's like the classic McCartney songwriting with that production, and it sort of just is so. As opposed to you know a Tears for Fears who are obviously influenced by that but are you doing the the then production but they're also then songwriters i love the the way that it's like and to me that's always sat kind of with what harry is to me because he's he's just a sum of all his influences in the best way you know like um and i feel like he loves all that classic songwriting and he loves he loves jazz and he loves this and he loves but he also loves you know pop music and he loves you know, and so it's to me that's what actually. I love. You know what? It's interesting. An- another way I could hear late night talking. Yes, Stevie Wonder, but I could hear it as sort of one of the Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney yes, collaborations. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and I think that's what was in my head. When we're working on it, it's more of that, like that whole. You're in this time that's like feels timeless, like when Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson get together. And they're doing their thing. And, and then you have Stevie Wonder doing similar things and all of those things. You're like, this is like, what, when is this? This is just all of it. And to me, what I get really excited about, because I've, I've definitely gone through points in my life where I've been like, why do I, why do I do music? What is it about music that really gets me excited? Mm. And I realized that it's because we're playing the cultural conversation game. And that's what's most exciting to me. Rather than like, you know, being number one because you wrote the song that, you know, just whatever had the most streams or whatever. It's more the, you know, writing the song that is the reason I get to speak to people like you and be like, we can get to have conversations because something's happening in culture and we're trying to understand it. And, you know, and we, you know, and I feel like that's why those moments are really interesting to me because it's not, you know, like I love Madonna. I love Madonna's the way she's always been felt very like you pick one of her albums and that define that's weirdly like the most that time sounding record of that time i feel like with some of her records mm. um like i bought my i bought my daughter ray of light on 
on on CD because she's got into like buying CDs and cassettes. And I was listening to it and I felt like this is the most kind of of that time, but it doesn't feel like it was chasing anything when it came out. It felt like it kind of really crossed a line between defining the time but being of its time. And But then there's also those moments like the Stevie Wonder and the McCartney and the, you know, the collaborations around then, even like some of the Steve Winwood stuff. Like all those guys when they were trying to be, you know, keep up, it feels really exciting because you're in this place where they know they're kind of not going to be culturally relevant in a in the sense that they're not of that generation necessarily that's new, but they're relevant to it in the musical cultural conversation. And that's what I find really, you know, that's what gets me excited about music is having that kind of feeling that like, you know, we played our tiny part of that conversation. And and then in to go with that is the duty that comes with then you're making the records thinking okay, well, this can't just follow what's there. This has to try and help define the next wave. You know what I mean? Try and be part of that conversation. It's not like, you know, we're not going to necessarily do one thing that's going to be like, oh, everyone does this now, but we're going to be a tiny part of, you know, moving things, moving the needle a different direction. Like you said, with the live drums um, and, and, and trying to do things that are, are a bit fresher. Um, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, you know, I, I always put it in the context of also that Olivia Rodrigo had a huge rock influence hit the year before. You know, and so something is happening. You exactly. Know, a, a shift is afoot. I don't know what you make of that. And, and, the, and then, you know, looking at your work with Maggie Rogers as well, it seems like there is something in the air, a shift. Yeah. I mean, suddenly, you know, I remember having a conversation with an A&R man, like, and I, uh, about, I mean, I've been doing it, I feel like I'm, you know, saying it was centuries ago, but <laughs> really only like, must've been seven years ago. And I remember him saying, guitars are a really hard sell on radio. And now guitar is everything. Like you just hear it <laughs> everywhere. It's like, you know, um, even people like Steve Lacey who are incredible. And then to Olivia, who's, I think, to me, I, I think she's phenomenal. Olivia said, I love rock guitar music. And someone would out there would have been like, no, you should do this kind of pop. You should do that kind of pop. She said, no, I'm going to do this. This is what I really want to do. And maybe she's had to make some compromises along the way that we don't know about. And maybe that will become apparent over the course of her career. Maybe she'll go more one way or another. But just watching my daughter consume it so deeply, because I now, I listen to Olivia as like, that's not my generation's music, but it's music I can appreciate. And I think it's so well made and I enjoy it. But watching her consume it, I go, yes, she's buying into this culture and she's buying into someone that's like conscious about her decisions. Um, and pop people don't tend to get credit for that as much mm. as like, you know, more of the indie artists that we look to. But when you're kids, you know, I listened to New Kids on the Block and Michael Jackson, you know, I was all pop music. And then got older and started, you know, listening to Jimi Hendrix and getting into drugs and sex and <laughs> all the things you're not meant to. And then, you know, then you make other decisions. But then, but when I, when you, you know, when, when you just see it in that pure level of like reaction, I just see my daughter reacting to 
her generation and a culture of, you know, fresh ideas. You've obviously had your own career as an artist with some great songs. I would certainly recommend people check out Stealing Cars, among others. I'm throwing stones just to get you all alone. I want to take you driving. Which, uh, and especially if anyone who likes your work with Harry would probably love that. Um, yeah. Are you happy to, have you put aside your sort of soul career for good? Do you think you might ever return to it, make your own album again? Um, do you know what? I actually thought it's, I'm glad I did it because I, I feel like it set me up to be like, I know, I know what I wish I had when I was an artist because I was a really great live act. And then it took me a long time to figure out how to make a record. Mm. And I worked with Trevor Horn on my record, who's um, wow. like one of the best producers of all, all time. And, and I kind of felt like he really on making that record really lit the spark in me to want to be a producer and, and kind of, I learned so much from just being around him and working on that record. And then, and weirdly it made me go, Oh, I'm ready to just take a pause because the, the record was well received and everything, but being an artist is very, very difficult because you have to have a singular vision. And I found that because I can play a lot of instruments and I'm very passionate about music and I love I love music if it feels real and genuine and there's a lot of that. So it's not necessarily genre specific. So it's really, you know, you have to be very strong-minded and I'm very like open to ideas which and I think it really suits me this side of producing people because I feel like I can get really inspired by Maggie or Harry or Florence or whoever I'm working with. And I can say, ah, oh, it would be so good and buy into their vision. And they're like, they're obsessed with one thing. And I can bring all my influence and structure to that. And and so I feel like coming off doing my artist project, I, I feel like I was better suited to this side of things. But now I have hit a point where I was like, oh, I actually really am craving doing something for myself. But not in a way that, you know, I'm not going to try and release a pop record and go on tour and do videos and stuff i'd like to do something you know like we were just talking about to do with the cultural conversation because i feel like you know like i've i've earned a privilege now where i could just sit in my studio that i've built with all my toys and and just sit and make music for you know a week and just say you know i've come up with some songs out of that so it's something i've been thinking about doing i guess what i'm waffling around saying (laughs) is that i i do i am going to come back to that at some point um but it'll be, I think it'll feel more personal to me as opposed to to do it and then tour and then, you know, maybe I'll soft, like, release it and put it out, but it wouldn't be a, you know. For now, I absolutely love just working with other people and that's what I find really inspiring. Tell me how the, the Lizzo song, If You Love Me, came about. I've learned to love me as myself But when I'm with somebody else I question Well, that was cool. She, so, she... She, Lizzo and Harry are close and she loves Harry's music. So after Fine Line, um, Lizzo wanted to work and I'd just been doing a, a record with Nate Mercero um, and he was close with Lizzo too. And I was like, well, why don't we work together? So we went in and we, we had like a day. Basically, we had a random day and we wrote we wrote the song. Um, well, actually, we wrote like four songs that day or something, like three songs maybe. And two of them were kind of not great. And then at the end, Nate started playing some chords and Lizzo started singing. And they really kind of like wrote, it was a weird moment. It was more of like my sort of process in that was the song came together kind of quick. And it was more of a like, Nate was playing some chords, 
Lizzo sang some words and recorded this guitar and vocal thing down. And then it kind of sat as just like this rough idea, as like a guitar and vocal idea on a hard drive for ages. And then suddenly like Brandon, her A&R, called up and was like, hey man, I've listened back to that song. It's really good. You guys need to finish it. Um, and this was like, must have been like 18 months later. And so I called up Nate and was like, man, I guess we have to finish this song. They, they seem to like it. So we went <laughs> in and we went in with Lizzo. And my thing with it was like, this is just really slow and kind of what you're singing in the song is a positive message, but it doesn't feel like a positive message because she's singing, if you love me, you love all of me. But if you imagine that over a much slower song, it starts to feel like you're saying, it's almost like you're saying you don't love me. Mm. It's like you're, you're in this abusive relationship. If you love me, you love all of me. And I'm unhappy because I want you to love all of me. So I was like, somehow it's bugging me and I want to make this uplifting. And like going back to what I said, I love a good time and a party song. So then I was like, what if we do like a mini Ripperton and we can kind of like maybe kind of build it up to that and maybe pick up the tempo of it and kind of get it to a place where it feels at the end kind of like a bit more euphoric. So then we kind of went on this like journey and we actually ended up getting there really quickly. Um, and Lizzo loved that idea. So we, we basically went in and then had to kind of wrangle it around. It takes a lot of process taking a song like that's a slow song and then trying to make it something mm. else. And it's still probably only a mid-tempo song now, but it the whole thing now feels like I'm confident in myself. If you love me, then you love all of me. Um, and I want you to be there. And it feels more of like a positive, like almost, you know, old school soul, Aretha kind of like listening vibe, which I, you know, I love that vibe, you know, when you listen to those and it just, sometimes the tempo and the music around a song can really change that. So that was the kind of challenge with that song 18 months later. And actually the, the, the time between it really gave us some distance to kind of figure that out. Cause I don't know if we would have got there necessarily on the day like that. Um, but yeah, that one came out great. Yeah, it's a cool song. The uh, I know your your collaboration with Harry began with sweet with a sweet creature. I believe that was the first song you wrote together. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, I, what was it about? And then you did one other song, I think, for the debut. How did you guys hit it off? How did the sort of close partnership and friendship begin? Well, I'd met Harry during his like One Direction days through friends in London, and we just got on, and we'd like you know it was. But it sort of was at the tail end of the band. And I don't know, but I think there was he had an idea that maybe he was going to have to start doing a solo project at some point. And I feel like we were sort of, and that was never really said, but I feel like I was in his mind for that because he loved. And then, you know, I'd moved to L.A. And then a couple of years later, he'd called me and he just said, you know, I've, I was making a list of like a playlist of songs I really like. And I've got two Florence songs on there that you did. I think it was What Kind of Man and Ship to Wreck. Um, oh, no. Uh, or sh I can't remember. Shake It Out, maybe. <laughs> One of those. And then um, and he was like, I'd love to get in if you've got a minute. And I was like, of course, you know, I think. And I'd remember, I'd remember before just thinking, he's got it. Whatever it is, he's got it. Because he's just, I, you know, as a person, I love him. He's just a, and he's, and he wants it for the right reasons. He doesn't want to be good at music to and make good music to be famous and be rich and get girls. And I know he loves all those things as well. <laughs> but he wants it because he loves music. He he just, 
you know, he'll come in and he'll talk to you about music in a way that I was like, yes, someone that loves me, like loves it the way I do. He called me up and was like, can we get in? I was like, sure. So we spent a week together and we, we knew each other, but not like really well. And I feel like by the end of that week, we'd written like five songs. Some of them were really good, but Sweet Creature was kind of probably the standout. Um, but my, above all, it felt like we got this like real chemistry and and friendship as well. So then he left because we'd record and we'd go and eat dinner and we just basically would be like together for a week. And then he's like, oh, I've got this session coming up with them. Um, you know, I'm working with these guys and Jeff Basker and, like, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of time with them. Um, and then he came back and he was, like, uh, you know, a few weeks later and he's like, man, these guys are really cool. You should come in with us and do a song. So I went in and we did Carolina. Mm. And then and then they finished the record um, and put it out. And then it was just, I don't know, it just, it was so nice to be part of it. And and also just, that was when I met Tyler. And it just felt, you know, when, when, then when Fine Line came around, he sort of, you know, put us all together and it kind of just, um, Jeff Basker wasn't around as much because I think he was, he had like a, his his baby had been born and it just sort of evolved a bit from that after the whole thing. It was quite natural. And I loved, I remember just loving what those guys were doing because they had like a group and it really put a, sparked a kind of light bulb in my head that I was like, oh, what I love about what they're doing that I can't do is I am one guy. Like you come in with me, I'll play every instrument I'll produce it all. I'll write with you. I'll write lyrics with you. I'll write musical parts with you. I can do as much. I, I feel like my skill in being of is that I can fit in where needed. It wherever someone's strengths are, I can mm. kind of I can kind of, you know, adapt to that and be like, oh well, here's where they need some help. I can adjust to that. Um, and the the which is great. But one thing you kind of lack is the ability to give depth to. A recording which comes from you know different musicians different ideas and everything evolving and listening to them do that because it was like tyler and alex salibian and mitch and jeff basker and harry and and it just even like the engineer ryan nashi i think was playing bass like it was a lot of people you know collaborating it was almost like a proper band record and um and it really just made those recordings really interesting in a different way that i wasn't able to achieve just on my own and so it really kind of brought that in and then when I worked with Maggie on Surrender it was a big thing for me with her I was like this can't just be me and you doing everything we have to like bring people in and I don't want to just call up you know the session crew let's you know all the people so we had like John Batiste come in for a day and he played across everything and he he actually couldn't get there till like 11 o'clock at night and I mean I don't know if you know much about John but he's unreal keyboard yeah. player and it just if you ever seen him play it's probably one of the most incredible experiences i've seen but he's just a real character and he'd been awake for like 24 hours and <laughs> he came in and he played across everything and sometimes he'd play and then he'd laugh because he was in love what he played with so much so then we had i love the walkman and maggie's manager used to manage them so i was like oh man can we get matt barrick in you know to play drums on a couple of songs so matt came in and played drums and it was I mean, he's a phenomenal, like, drummer and, like, one of the best. And he's, and that's, like, do you know what I mean? Like, an, a, across the whole thing. You know, even one night, and I got Maggie, I'd left the studio late, and she came down with uh, Claro and her friend Claude and went and talked. I never even met them. And I came in the next day, and she was like, hey, I got, I just played Claude and Claro um, <laughs> the song, 
It's called I've Got a Friend. And I just recorded them whilst they listened to it. And they played it and they were just saying really, they were just drunk and saying really funny, dumb things. And it was, they were awesome. And it, we kind of just sort of like then mixed it in and out throughout the song, you know. Like there's a bit where John's, and they, they weren't in the same room as John, but John had played, was playing some piano on that, on like a tack piano. And he's playing this part and some, we'd edited it together to be the best, like the, I mean, he did like two takes when I say edited, but we'd kind of taken out bits and sort of, and there's just a bit where, I think Clara or someone goes, oh, my God, he's really good at piano. <laughs> and it just, it kind of sits there and it's like, I don't know, it makes everything just three-dimensional in a really fun way, I think. Yeah, I mean, the Maggie album feels like almost a, a full change in genre for her. It's a real leap. Yeah, I mean, that came about because she, um, I went to see her play through, we'd already done Light On on her previous record. Keep And then I went to see her play Shoot. So Harry did a song with Casey Musgraves and featured with her. And I'd been with Harry and he was like, I'm going to do this song. Do you want to come with me? And I saw that Maggie was supporting and we'd been talking about getting back in the studio. So I was like, oh, it'd be great. I can finally see Maggie live. And I went and she blew me away. I don't know if you've ever seen her, but her on uh, the first record and then the second record, uh, somehow something happened after that first record that she just, I don't know, something happened. But I was like, she's incredible live. Like she's, it didn't sound like the same record to me. And she was like, I know, and I want to do this like rock record. I want it to be really hard and I want it to feel like this. I was like, oh, great. Okay. So then we'd have mood boards around the studio and she was like, I want to do this. I want to do that. And it was a real change for her. And I, and what's funny is I kind of made, I was working on with Maggie at sort of at the same time as we were doing Harry's house. So I was going, I'd spend like some time with Maggie and then I'll be in with Harry, then back in with Maggie and then back in with Harry. I was sort of going between. <laughs> and I felt like we made a really masculine record with, with Maggie and almost a really feminine record with Harry, which is kind of interesting. Like, like hmm. maybe not too extreme like that, but I feel like those kind of like, that's kind of how it felt to me. It felt very different. Maybe because Ma Maggie's is so kind of masculine, it more stands out. But, um, but I, yeah, it was real, you know, that was a real kind of conscious shift from her part. And I think with Maggie, because what I thought was interesting was, what I love about her stuff was the kind of mixing up of samples and production um, into like on the first album into that sort of acoustic-y, canyon-y, Joni Mitchell world she had going on. And then on this one, it was like, okay, how do we do that? But like she really wanted it to be like New York strokes, you know, 1977 New York, like streets, gutsy, like sweat, Iggy Pop, all those kind of influences. But then, but then having that sample-y kind of modern twist on it too i think was super interesting um and yeah so that was kind of our well, what's the trick to pull that off because again there's a little bit of that on the i mean obviously not your work but <laughs> olivia rodrigo does that too where it's it's very rock influence but there is that sort of sampley modern vibe what in your mind is the key to keeping that balance i think a lot of it's in the drums and the bass that's my mm. 
Bob's whole theory because I think if the if the drums, you know, nowadays I I I feel like rock, you know, and I'll probably get there's probably a million references where I'm completely wrong about this <laughs> that are really current. But in my experience, when someone says rock drums, they instant you instantly imagine, um, you know, Led Zeppelin type vibe where it's like a live drummer. And you can hear a room in the background and they've recorded in a big room. And it's that, you know, Glyn John's the engineer. They use his mic technique, which is widely known with engineers and everything. And and it's kind of like a common thing that everyone does. So if you go in with a rock band, that's rock drums. And then what they do is they have the drummer play and they go get the best take and the drummer's doing feels and everything. And it weirdly feels like it's become such a thing now that it's kind of killed rock music a little bit. Because I feel like when you actually think about it and you go back and you listen to like Rolling Stones records, again, I'm thinking like the 80s. But even before that, there was some like, even like Phil Collins and there was some really, you know, they put gated drums, they put gated reverbs, they'd record it and but put these like crazy effects on to make the drums sound like, you know, wild or like sometimes they'd be playing like Simmons drum machines or they'd be, you know, so drum production used to actually be especially in rock music used to be really interesting and now it's become a bit by numbers so i feel like if you can just apply a bit more intention to the drums and the bass and make them feel produced it makes a world of difference to a production because it suddenly makes it you know the drums is such a huge part of a record that if it's just record you know throw up some mics and we'll do that rock thing and everyone knows what that sounds like you've instantly lost some intention from the recording whereas you know some of those engineers they didn't have samples and all this stuff they were lining in they were like you know you listen to jerry rafferty records there's that song um which my mind's gone blank it's one of my favorite songs right down the line yeah exactly so when you listen to that song um the snare drum on that song, it blows my mind because I've got friends who are like professional session drummers. I've been asking them, how do you get that snare sound? Because it sounds like a drum machine to me, but it's not. It's like a live drummer. And it's like the way they've mic'd the snare and they've there's so much intention behind it and it sounds so awesome. And... I don't know if, you know, there's not always rock bands aren't always doing that these days. And so I feel like in terms of rock music and becoming on the radio again, I feel like I think there's an element of that. Pop music to me is always very intentional. Everything mm. is kind of, you know, intended to be where it is and feel very there's not really a lot of looseness to it often. I think when you look at bands nowadays, like if you look at a rock band nowadays or an indie band, you're talking about Portugal, the man or you know, Foster the People or, you know, Tame Impala. And a lot of those bands are now like guys in rooms using programmed drums and, and like they're playing, but then Tame Impala, you know, really intentional Absolutely. about their drum sounds. And, it's, and it makes a huge difference and it's what sets them aside. And before I let you go, what are you working on like right now mostly? What, what, is, what is taking up your time right now? My kids taking up a lot of my time <laughs> but aside from that i'm privileged enough to be in a position now where i'm working with some people who i absolutely worship and have, you know and are well enough that i'm i'm never quite sure what i'm allowed to say gotcha. that i am working on and what i'm not and it's it's annoying because right now i just want to scream about these amazing people but i am um, i've i always get you know it's not necessarily my you know 
I'll get in trouble if I tell anyone, you know. So it's not something my good enough that you're not allowed to talk about it. So that's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah, yeah. But, and I'm excited, but I guess where I'm at now is also looking for, I guess what's consuming more of my time is listening to stuff and finding stuff that is now, I feel like I've really honed in on that cultural thing that gets me really excited about artists and bands right now and looking for those. Cause I think they're, they're a lot rarer than you think and, and finding those artists who are really excited about, you know, being part of that. So I think a lot of my focus is on finding the next thing. And so I'm trying, I'm really trying to like, you know, listen more intently to music in a way that I, you know, it's, I've been so paddling to kind of working away for so long and just kind of now finding some time to just sit back and listen to music and kind of discover some new things and get excited again, I think is, is my kind of priority. With Harry, I mean, how ideally would you like to build on what you've done in the past couple of records? I mean, the way I think about it is, I mean, it's hard because you have a something that's so successful as that's been and it can become a real burden, I think. And which sounds weird because you would think, it would be the most freeing thing, but it's, if you do it wrong, I think it can really, you start to compare everything to it. And I think commercially you can't do anything bigger. I mean, you can, there are numbers you can always beat. There's always a record to break. And as it was again, being like 14 weeks at number one or whatever it's been, you know, I sort of feel like you can't really get much bigger. You can, but you can't, you know, it's very minimal, but what you can do is just get better. And so I feel like what we can do is find some new things and, He's carved out a space for himself and let's just explore that more. And what I would love is just to keep building. And, you know, when when I look back at, you know, whether it's Talking Heads or Radiohead or whoever, I look back at those artists and even Tom Petty, I'm a huge Tom Petty fan. And you just think those those artists went on a run where they were just knew they were in a creative stride and they just went for it. And that's what I hope for 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 going forward with Harry is that we just whatever it is next, it's not let's not try and second guess it or do anything based on what we've done before. Let's just try and do something new and land somewhere exciting. And hopefully everyone's as excited to hear it as we are to kind of hear it as well. You know, I feel like we don't know what it is yet. You know what I mean? It's that kind of feeling. And, and that could be anything, which is the most exciting thing about it. Um, so my dream would be to go on a bit of a, you know, bit of a run of albums. Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Stone Roses fan as well. love the stone roses that first album was incredible and even like yeah. second coming was incredible but i do wish they just made th three or four albums in between those two records and as a fan i just wish i don't know what, why they didn't i actually don't know the history of whether you know something happened or they were on tour or whatever but i just feel like there was there's two good albums that that band could have made that didn't get made um and and like you know so i sort of feel a responsibility that you know let's you know um let's work while it's happening you know and finally harry said in our latest cover story that you're you're quote unquote obsessed with things like that weird rumor that he's bald and stuff do you just get a kick out of <laughs> out of memes about these people who are who are very real to you i mean i'll be i'll be honest i don't know if anyone knows if he isn't actually bald it could be <laughs> it could be it's very i mean look i don't want to add to the rumors but you know maybe i don't know I've just seen <laughs> seen his hair change color overnight so dramatically. I don't know. Um, I love all the because it's so stupid. Everything's so stupid. It's just 
funny. And like what I love about him is because that's all part of the cultural thing, whether he's like there's some video of him, you know, supposedly spitting on Chris Pine or if he's, <laughs> you know, like people are saying he's bald or if, you know, whatever the latest rumor is going to be tomorrow. I love that that's his place in culture right now as he's so important in what he's representing right now that conversations that are just so stupid are about him and news stories. No one's talking about if I might be bald, <laughs> which is a very real concern. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm proud of him for being that important right now. And it makes me laugh and it's so funny, but it's also, I like him to know how proud I am of him of that. Cause I think it's, it's not a position. A lot of people, it's what we all strive to do. And it's not, no one strives to have news articles about them being bald, but, but, um, but if they happen, it means you're doing something else somewhere. Cause that's not why people are writing. They're writing because he's being very successful right now. And I think it's awesome. And I don't know that he's not bald. No one can prove it. <laughs> I mean, we could prove it. We could, I guess, scientifically give, prove it, but give it a hard tug next time. Yeah. I mean, there's high-end glues out there, I'm sure. <laughs> I just don't know for sure. But I like to think for us mere mortals who don't look like Harry that he is bald. And, <laughs> I mean, I bet he's, the truth is he probably would be bald and he'd be the most handsome bald person in the world. So it's annoying. Um, but, no, I love all that stuff. Yes. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. No, I loved it. Thanks so much. And that is our show for today. Thanks so much to Tom Hole, a.k.a. Kid Harpoon. And Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.